Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Just a few announcements before we begin. First of all, please turn off your cell phones. I know you get that reminder often, but just check that it's on silent. It helps everyone. Second of all, I know last week we had our Friday afternoon at the movie screening did not work, so it has been postponed to this Friday. We are screening EO, the Polish film about the donkey. It has won many awards and you should definitely come. Uh, also, Kathy Diamond's postponed uh, presentation from last month in December is on Monday, this coming Monday, January 22nd, up in the multipurpose room. And those are all of my announcements for today. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming Dr. Joe Schwartz for Science Demystified. Thank you. All right, are you ready to go to sleep? That's good, because that's what we're talking about today. We're going to tell you the story of one of the most important uh, discoveries in the history of science, and certainly in the history of medicine, which, of course, is uh, anesthesia. Today, we take it for granted. However, it dates back only to the middle 1800s. Before that time, if you had to undergo surgery, it was done without any kind of anesthetic. Can you imagine having a leg amputated without any anesthetic? This was a surgery that was commonly performed because they knew that after an injury, for example, you know, cut with a sword, uh, gangrene would set in. And they knew that once that happened, you die unless the limb was removed. But removing that limb without any anesthetic was really quite an adventure. It was not only amputations that they did. <laughs> Urinary retention. If any of you have ever struggled with that, you know that this is one of the, the worst pains that you can have. And that urine has to be released. Well... Before anesthesia, they just used a bamboo tube or a metal tube. And I doubt very much that the patient stood by so calmly when that was happening. But this was done without any kind of an anesthetic. In some cases, people even survived. But the real story of anesthesia takes us back to 1777 and Joseph Priestley, a well-known chemist at that time, very often said to be the discoverer of oxygen, which is uh, needs an asterisk, because he did find that heating uh, mercury oxide uh, gave off a substance that allowed a mouse to frolic uh, more vigorously, but he never really recognized this as, as oxygen. That was done much later by Lavoisier. But he really was the first to produce oxygen. However, what he really is noted for is the heating of ammonium nitrate, which is a naturally occurring mineral, to produce a gas. Today we know it as nitrous oxide. And he was the first one 
to notice that when you inhale this gas, you got giddy. He didn't do anything with this, though. But today, we are very concerned about nitrous oxide because it is one of the breakdown products of ammonium nitrate, which is used as fertilizer. It's the most widely used fertilizer in the world. It is essentially what was responsible for the Green Revolution, allowing starving people in, in Asia to have a food supply. Uh, but unfortunately, nitrous oxide is also a greenhouse gas. So it results in, in climate change. But anyway, back to our anesthesia business. Uh, based upon uh, Priestley's discovery, Sir Humphrey Davy explored this substance, this nitrous oxide, further. And he really was the first one to notice that inhaling large amounts of this substance caused you to have feelings of, of happiness, uh, what we would term as euphoria. And interestingly enough, it was used uh, in demonstrations for the public. As you can see, advertised here, uh, this was... Uh, described by Humphrey Davy and advertised that this would be used as a demonstration, which it was at the Royal Institution of Great Britain in London. Uh, this was the prime locale for the practice of science in the 1800s. And people frocked there every Friday night for a public lecture on science. Now, you have to remember that this was before the days of television, before the days of movies, before the days of, of radio. The only form of entertainment was live entertainment. And public lectures on science were very popular. In fact, Albemarle Street, where the Royal Institution is located, was the first street in the British Empire to be made one way because the carriage traffic was so intense on coming to the Friday night lectures that to avoid a traffic jam, they had to make the street one way. Well, it was at one of those Friday night lectures that nitrous oxide was first demonstrated to the public. And it's depicted here in a rather famous cartoon. Uh, this is uh, Humphrey Davy looking somewhat impish here with a, a, a bladder full of nitrous oxide and the volunteer from the audience had just inhaled some of it, and you see it's making a triumphant exit through his uh, rear. Uh, but this was a public demonstration of, of nitrous oxide. This is where people learned about its existence. And uh, after that, it triggered nitrous oxide parties where people would inhale nitrous oxide, as you can see, and frolic around very, very uh, happily. Well, today, uh, this is still done at raves. And, uh, you know, kids buy nitrous oxide uh, in balloons and inhale it. It's not a particularly smart thing to do, uh, especially if they've done some other drugs, which they, they often uh, do. Uh, you know, they do some ecstasy and uh, they're not ecstatic enough, and they'll inhale some nitrous oxide, and it can have some pretty, pretty uh, severe consequences. So um, 
nitrous oxide became uh, a subject of public demonstrations and of cartoons. This was a cartoon in the 1800s, and it's one that, that of course, would be today socially unacceptable because of the caption, Remedy for Scolding Wives. So this, this was a way to make your wife happy and, and uh, encourage her to leave you alone. Uh, of course, uh, this is something that today would be absolutely impossible to put into a newspaper, but that was a totally different uh, era. There were large-scale public demonstrations of this, as you can see at the Delphi Theatre, which was one of the most popular theatres at that time in, in, uh, in London, and you can see all of the stage uh, performances, uh, astonishing illusions, etc., and then you see at the bottom experiments on gas, a scent of a balloon, and <laughs> laughing gas, and optical illusions, etc. So it was a whole night of entertainment, and one act was the use of uh, of nitrous oxide. Well, it was at one of these um, entertainments, just outside of Boston in Colton, Massachusetts, that an American dentist by the name of Horace Wells was in the audience. And uh, the demonstration was uh, very similar to, to what uh, I've shown you in, in London. Um, a volunteer would come up, or more than one volunteer from the audience. They would inhale some nitrous oxide on the stage. And to the entertainment of the audience, they would, you know, be all giddy, dance around, etc. Well, Wells saw one of those volunteers fall off the stage and he gashed his leg. But the amazing thing was that he seemed to be totally oblivious of this. He climbed right back up on the stage, pranced around some more. Well, this intrigued Wells. He was a dentist. And of course, in those days, dentists had really nothing to take away pain. The patient had to be held down while the tooth was extracted because extractions really were the only thing that dentists could do in, in those days. And of course, dentists were constantly looking for ways to, to somehow alleviate pain. There was one, one way, uh, which was cocaine, uh, cocaine is a local anesthetic, so they could rub it on the gums, and that would alleviate pain somewhat, but still certainly not enough to, to you know, ignore the pain when your tooth was being pulled out. So Wells thought that maybe this guy who had fallen off the stage and had not noticed that he cut his leg, somehow it was due to the gas that he had inhaled. So he went uh, backstage and he purchased a pig bladder full of nitrous oxide from the showman. This was before rubber balloons. So the only way that gases could be transported was in the bladder of a pig. And that's the original balloon. This is how nitrous oxide would be carried around in those days. So he purchased uh, this and he went back to his dental office and he did what any good scientist would do. He made his assistant sit down in the chair, made him inhale some nitrous oxide, 
and proceeded to extract the tooth. And it turned out that the guy didn't have any pain. He didn't jump up and scream uh, like his patients normally did. So Wells thought that he really did have something here. And to his, I guess we could say his credit, you know that in, in, in science, one experiment really doesn't mean anything. You have to repeat it. And uh, so he decided that he had to repeat this. And somewhat to his credit, he did it on himself. He inhaled some of the nitrous oxide and had his assistant pull out one of his teeth. Now that's dedication for you. And he felt nothing. So he knew that he had something here. He also recognized that this was too good to keep for dentists only because doctors, surgeons, of course, were struggling with this same problem. So he decided to go down to Massachusetts General Hospital, which at that time was the prime hospital in the world, which it probably still is. And he went to speak to the chief surgeon, John Collins Warren, and he told him about his experience. And Warren was interested because, of course, they had nothing. Uh, surgery was done by tying the patient down onto, onto the table and constant struggle in order to, to carry out the surgery with the writhing patient. So Wells suggested an experiment. He said to Warren, and he was going to bring one of his patients who needed a tooth extracted and uh, that Warren should gather his doctors to watch this demonstration and see whether or not they could capitalize on it. So the appointed day came and uh, Wells marched down to Massachusetts General uh, with his patient in tow, made him sit down in the chair and uh, had him inhale nitrous oxide, and proceeded to pick up the pliers and began to tug at the tooth. What happened at the time was pretty much of a shock to Wells because the patient began to scream and ran out of the room. But what had happened was that in his eagerness to demonstrate how well this works, he didn't allow enough time to pass after the nitrous oxide had been inhaled because it takes some time for it to be affected. He was disgraced by this and uh, he never quite overcame the disgrace. Two years later, he actually committed suicide because of this. But he had a partner in his practice William Morton, who had seen Wells use nitrous oxide and saw the positive results. And he knew that there was something to this and that surgeons were missing something by not using this uh, anesthetic. So uh, he decided to do something about this, but he knew that he would have no chance of convincing Warren to try this again after the Wells fiasco. But he figured 
that maybe if he could come up with something different and better, he may be able to convince them to try it. Because even back then, uh, Americans, uh, you know, uh, went for the bigger, the better, whatever. And uh, so he thought that he had, you know, a chance of uh, telling him that that he had come up with something new and improved and to give it a shot. But what was he to come up with? He had to first have an idea. So he uh, marched down to Harvard University, which was his alma mater, to speak to his former chemistry professor, Charles Jackson, because he thought that if anyone knew anything about putting people to sleep, it was a chemistry professor. So he began to question him whether or not he had any kind of an idea. And uh, Jackson said, you know, it's interesting that you, you should ask, because I've noticed that when my students are working with this liquid, this solvent, ether, which was very commonly used in the laboratory in, in those days because it was a very good solvent for so many different things, uh, that they complain of being drowsy. So maybe you want to take a look at this. And he gave him a container of ether, which uh, Morton took home with him and became his own guinea pig and inhaled some of this vapor because ether is very volatile. At room temperature is a liquid, but it evaporates very easily and becomes a vapor, becomes a gas. So he inhaled it. And sure enough, he went to sleep. And best of all, he woke up after. So now he had something that he thought he could go to Warren with and tell him that he had something new and improved and it was worth taking a shot. He tried it, of course, first on his patients in his dental practice. And he just took a piece of cloth, soaked it in ether, put it over the patient's mouth, and guy went to sleep. Carried out the procedure, and the guy woke up. All looked good. But it wasn't a very practical thing, you know, to, to soak a cloth and put it in over the patient's mouth. Uh, so he actually came up with an ether inhaler. And this is it. The world's first ether inhaler. It was a glass vessel with a sp sponges inside. He would soak the sponges with ether. Of course, the ether fumes would fill the flask. And this was attached by a tube to the patient's mouth. Historic Orion. This was made in 1846, and it is, still exists. That very one that was used in the first operation, it's at the Warren Museum in Boston, which is part of Harvard University. If you ever get a chance to go to Boston, this is a place that is absolutely phenomenal. The things that you can see there. You'll see the original ether inhaler, sitting right beside the famous skull of Phineas Gage. How many of you know that story? It is one of the most interesting stories in history of medicine, in history of anatomy. Phineas Gage was a worker building railroad lines through New Hampshire. And uh, 
when you build a railroad line, of course, you have to clear away whatever rocks may be in the way, boulders. And what they would do in those days would be to blow up those boulders. So they would drill a hole into the rock, fill it with gunpowder, damp it down, light it, and blow the rock apart. He was the foreman in charge of one of these operations. So they had drilled a hole, filled it with gunpowder, and he was just using this iron rod to push the gunpowder into the hole when he generated a spark and the gunpowder exploded and it drove the iron rod right through his head, completely through, going in one eye and coming out the top of his head. You can see his skull, which was he donated in his will to, to, to Harvard. And the amazing thing is that he survived. And he lived for about 20 years after this. However, there was a difference in his personality. He had been a mild-mannered guy before. After this adventure, he became abusive because it changed the chemistry of his brain. It blew away part of his brain. So anyway, you can go there and see his skull. And there's the hole with the uh, rod that went through. And here's the rod. Uh, and it's amazing that he actually survived this. So these are the kind of things you can see in the Warren Museum. So anyway, so Morton went down there and was able to convince uh, Warren to try this again. And on October 16, 1846, which is one of the most important dates in the history of medicine, Morton anesthetized a patient who had an external tumor on his neck using ether. And in this famous painting of the event, here's Morton holding the ether inhaler. And there is Warren just about ready to use the scalpel to remove the tumor. Now, there are several interesting things to note here. Is um, the reason that rooms where surgery was performed were and still are called theaters. You ever wondered about that? Why is a surgical theater called a theater? Because the original ones had seating, right, where other doctors and nurses, etc., would come to watch an operation to learn from it. So they had this tiered seating. Notice also that they were dressed in their finery because this was before the knowledge of, of antisepsis. They didn't know about germs, so they didn't know that they had to be careful about... Uh, uh, cleanliness. Why are there so many standing around? Because they were getting ready to hold down the patient as they would normally do in those days for surgery. So uh, Morton made sure this time, of course, that the patient was out. He motioned to uh, Warren to go ahead and somewhat with reticence, he picked up the scalpel and started to cut. And he was sure that 
he would see the patient recoil and scream or whatever, as was always the case. But it didn't. And Warren looked up at the audience and he said, gentlemen, this is no humbug. Why gentlemen? Because in those days, of course, only men were uh, allowed into medicine. And on that day, ether anesthesia was born. It was a remarkable event because for the first time, a major surgical procedure was carried out without any pain and the subject woke up after and was none the worse for wear. And uh, he even survived. And I say even because, as I said, this was before any knowledge of bacteria and uh, infections were rampant. But Luckily, he survived. They, two days later, they recreated this event. Now, this is, remember, 1846. This was in the very early days of photography. So they did not have a photographer standing by for the original operation. But after, when they recognized what a historic event it was, they recreated it. And this is an actual photograph of that event in 1846, two days after the, the operation. That is the real patient. And uh, there's Warren and uh, uh, Morton as well. Let's see, there he is holding the inhaler. It's a remarkable uh, photograph. And on that day, as I said, ether anesthesia was born. No, it was, it replaced the laughing gas at that time. Uh, Massachusetts General today is still the top hospital in the world. And the room today known as the ether dome has been preserved. Uh, of course, it has been rebuilt because 100 years, uh, there's a lot of damage to the furniture, but you can still see the tiered seating. And this is really, uh, you know, a holy place for anyone interested in science. And there is the chair in which the first operation was carried out. It is not a re replica, it's the real one. And uh, I had the chance to go there. And, you know, you feel like you're really uh, in a holy, holy place. And uh, here is one of the, uh, the other paintings of that event in, in the ether dome. And uh, today they use it for lectures. I mean, obviously no surgery is performed there. Uh, but, but uh, you know, anyone who knows anything but us, about science is very impressed by just seeing that place. So ether uh, became the uh, item to use for uh, anesthesia. <laughs> you can see, I don't know what it means, stronger ether. I mean, ether is ether. There's, there's no such thing as weaker or stronger ether. But I guess, you know, marketing techniques were all prevalent uh, already at, uh, at that time. Now, the interesting thing uh, is that the cartoonists, of course, very quickly capitalized on this. And there is the, the kid who is being spanked, and uh, he's inhaling ether to reduce the pain of the spanking. 
the way that the public actually learned about ether as an anesthesia is a fascinating story because it involves Robert Houdin. And his name may be familiar to you uh, because, of course, all you have to do is add an I to it and it becomes uh, Houdini. Well, Eric Weiss became Harry Houdini. Eric Weiss, uh, born in, in Hungary, but uh, uh, never really admitted that. He always said that he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin, because he thought that you know he didn't want to be looked on as an immigrant. But when he became a magician, he thought he needed a stage name, and his hero was uh, Robert Houdin, who was the most famous magician in Europe at that time. So he pilfered his name, added an eye to it, and became uh, Harry Houdini, who, of course, is uh, uh, the most famous magician who ever lived, and, in fact, one of the most famous entertainers who, uh, who ever lived. He was, uh, you know, way back in the 1920s, making $3,000 a week, uh, which is more than, than what Taylor Swift makes today when you, you know, consider that it was the 1920s. So he was the most famous entertainer. And, and uh, the reason that this uh, comes into the story is because Robert Houdin used the discovery of ether as part of his act. Houdin was famous in Europe. He had his own theater in Paris where he would perform nightly. And here's one of you know the advertisements uh, for theater. He also traveled around Europe. This was in St. James Theater in, in, uh, in London. And one of the most famous illusions that he performed was the so-called suspension. Suspension is not the same as a levitation. Levitation is when you see someone levitated into the air without any support whatsoever, and the magician usually passes a hoop over them to show that there's no support. That's the levitation. This is the suspension, which usually starts out by the subject lying on a plank, which is then removed and seems to be suspended only by this rod. Well, I mean, you can imagine, or at least you can guess how this is performed. Uh, but anyway, the reason that this was interesting is because Houdin pretended that this was being done using ether vapor. So he came out on the stage and he told the audience about this fantastic experiment that had been performed in Boston, whereby ether had been used to put someone to sleep. And he was going to demonstrate another wonderful property of, of ether, which is that it would defy gravity. So he brought up the volunteer, which usually was his son, onto the stage, while attendants in the back shoveled some ether, or at least poured some ether onto hot shovels so that ether vapor filled the theater. And then the suspension was performed. And it actually was advertised as the suspension etherienne. The message was that, you know, it was these wonderful fumes of ether that were able to allow the subject to defy gravity. 
Of course, it had nothing to do with the ether. Uh, this is done, obviously, by the subject wearing some special metal corset under that hooks into the rod. And, you know, you also wonder how come the audience didn't wonder why they weren't rising up out of their seats, you know, when they were uh, sniffing uh, the ether. But anyway, this is the way the world learned about ether anesthesia. And it was a good thing because they thought that, you know, if they ever had to undergo surgery in, in, in a hospital, the worst thing may happen is that they float up off the operating room table. So it took away the fear of the, um, of the surgery. And within a couple of years, ether anesthesia was used around the world. Now, Robert Houdin uh, himself, uh, of course, was made famous by the illusions that he, he, he created, but he also played an interesting role in, in history because at that time, uh, Algeria was um, uh, a province of France. But there was a revolution on the way in Algeria. They wanted to separate from France. And the revolution was led by these rebel leaders who convinced people to follow them by pretending that they had magical powers. They had learned to do some magic tricks, and people thought that they were all powerful. So Houdin was sent by the French government to Algeria to assemble an audience and show them that French magic was more potent than Algerian magic. And Houdin was saddled with coming up with this magic. They had a large tent to where they invited these rebel leaders. And they had a chest on the stage. And he asked one of the big rebels to come up and lift this box, which of course he easily did. And then Houdin pretended wave his hands to magically remove the guy's strength, pointed at the box and asked him to lift it again. He was unable to do so. He struggled and struggled, was unable to lift the box. And he believed that Houdin really had the power to rob him of strength. He panicked, he ran out of the tent, followed by the others. And there never was a revolution. Houdin had created this trick using an electromagnet. Now, that was in the very early days of electricity. So the bottom of the box was made of iron. Under the stage, they had an electromagnet. When it was activated, it was impossible to pick up the box. So he's famous not only for the ether, but also for preventing a revolution. Now, one very interesting feature of this whole story is that four years before this classic demonstration in Boston, in 1842, a lowly family doctor in Georgia, he had himself come to the conclusion that ether could be used as an anesthetic. And he had actually performed some simple operations. But he never published this. Only after... Morton got all the publicity in 1846. Did he come out and say that he had done this? So it pays to publish because four years earlier, he already had used ether, but he didn't get the credit at that time. 
Even more interesting is that 500 years earlier, Paracelsus, the great sage, philosopher, alchemist, who first coined the expression, uh, only the dose makes the poison, had also experimented with ether. How did he have ether back then? Because if you take alcohol, ordinary alcohol, which of course they had since time immemorial because of fermentation, if you take ordinary alcohol and cook it up with some acid, uh, sulfuric acid, you can form ether. The alcohol changes into ether. And he already coined the phrase, only the dose makes the poison, and he investigated the use of ether, and he did notice that it put people sleep 500 years before the classic event at Massachusetts uh, General. Now, what is also interesting is that the characters who played a role in the development of, of ether all wanted credit for it. So here is Morton's grave in Boston. And you can see the engraving, by whom pain and surgery was averted and annulled, before whom in all times surgery was agony, since whom since, since science has control of pain. That's Morton's grave. Here is Horace Wells' grave. There shall be no pain crediting him with the discovery of anesthesia. Here is Jackson's grave. Eminent as a chemist, mineralogist, geologist, and investigator in all departments of natural science, through his observations of the peculiar effects of sulfur, sulfuric ether on the nerves of sensation and his bold deduction, therefrom the benign discovery of painless surgery was made. He wanted credit too. And then there's Long, who eventually did get uh, some credit for it. As you may know, if you've ever been to Washington, if you've been to the Capitol, under the cupola of the, uh, of the Capitol, under the big dome, every state has given a statue or a painting of its favorite son. And Georgia decided that the most famous Georgian uh, was uh, Crawford Long. And there is a statue, discoverer of the use of sulfuric ether as an aesthetic and surgery on March 30, 1842, four years prior to Morton's uh, discovery. Pretty interesting. Uh, they even, the United States even issued a stamp uh, honoring uh, Crawford Long. Now, at the same time, on the other side of the bond, bond in Scotland, James Simpson was also experimenting with vapors that could induce sleep. And this was a common thing that they did on those days. They heard the story of ether. They thought, you know, there must be other things that you, know, you could inhale. And they experimented with all kinds of solvents, heated them up, vaporized them, inhaled. And he... Notice that the vapors of chloroform could also put people to sleep. And he introduced that as an anesthetic. Once again, just pouring it on a piece of gauze, putting it over someone's face, putting them to sleep. Chloroform was used up 
to the 1950s, maybe even the early 1960s as an anesthetic. And uh, in um, 1954, I had my tonsils out using chloroform as anesthetic. And I remember this very well. This was, this was in Hungary. And the doctor took a piece of gauze, poured it on, put it over my face, told me to count backwards from three. I don't remember getting to two. And I mean, chloroform is no longer uh, used for several reasons. We have better anesthetics. And furthermore, it turned out to be a carcinogen. But luckily, I had the chloroform before it was a carcinogen. James Simpson said, listen, childbirth, that's a very painful thing. Why not try chloroform? Well, you would think that this was automatic, that, that people would jump at the idea of reducing the pain of childbirth. No. Believe it or not, the church in England was against this. Why? Because they referred to Genesis. To the woman, he said, I will sharply increase your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. <laughs> Eve should not have tempted Adam, right? With, with what? With an apple, everyone says that except the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does not name the fruit of the tree of knowledge. The reason we think it's an apple is because that's how it was painted by artists in the Middle Ages. That's the fruit that they, they knew. But there's no mention in the Bible of what that fruit of the tree of knowledge was. So anyway, this is the reason that the church was against it, because they said, well, God had decreed that, that you know children should be brought forth in, in pain. But Simpson was actually quite clever. God was not a woman. No, no. Uh, and neither, neither did it come true that, that men ruled over women. You, you know, the, the story is that if you want something done, you ask a man. If you want something done right, you ask a woman. <laughs> anyway, uh, but Simpson was a clever guy. He said, all right. Let's just take a look at the Bible. God caused a great sleep to fall over Adam. That's when he removed his rib, out of which he made Eve. So God was actually the world's first anesthetist. People bought that idea. And chloroform came to be used. And especially when Queen Victoria gave birth to Prince Leopold, using chloroform as an aesthetic, then, of course, it became totally acceptable. If it was good enough for the queen, of course, it was good enough for, uh, for everyone. Next, 1942, we come to the next major step. The Montreal Homeopathic Hospital. And this is an absolutely fascinating story. First of all, the Montreal Homeopathic Hospital today is what we know as the Queen Elizabeth Complex. Okay? It is an NDG. The original hospital was downtown, uh, as you can see on McGill College Avenue in the 1800s, before it moved to that location in, uh, in NDG. 
Now, there are several curious things here. A homeopathic hospital. Uh, homeopathy, I mean, I don't want to really get in, in, into that, but homeopathy is an absurd practice. Uh, it is based on the idea that a substance that in a healthy person causes symptoms cures those symptoms in a sick person when it is infinitely diluted. This makes no sense. I don't know what they would have done in a homeopathic hospital because homeopathy would not do anything. I think maybe, you know, they paid more attention to cleanliness, they paid more attention to diet, whatever. But in truth, it should not have been called a homeopathic hospital, certainly not by the 1940s, because surgery was performed there. It had become a, a normal hospital. And Dr. Harold Griffith was the chief of anesthesiology at the Montreal Homeopathic Hospital. But as I said, this is just a totally curious appellation uh, because, I mean, what does homeopathy have to do with surgery? You, you cannot you know, use any kind of homeopathic substance to put people to sleep. So no, this he was a regular anesthetist, although he, he was a McGill graduate, so he was a legitimate physician, of course, but he did do a year of study in Philadelphia at the homeopathic college there. So he knew about homeopathy, but that's not what he practiced. He was a legitimate anesthesiologist. And 1942 was a turning point once again in the history of anesthesia because he was the first person to introduce curare during surgery to make sure that muscles did not go into spasm. Surgeons don't like the idea that when they use the scalpel and they start making the cut, the body starts to quiver and go into spasm. This was a big problem back in those days. But he introduced curare. This was the trade name and the costrin of, of curare made by Squibb Pharmaceuticals. This was a huge thing. In those days, in order to try to prevent muscles from going into spasm during surgery, they would have to use as high a dose of the anesthetic as they could because anesthesia also reduced the chance of spasm. But using anesthesia in high doses for a long time was also dangerous. So with the introduction of curare, they could lighten the dose of uh, of the anesthetic. And this, of course, was, was very important. Now, the history of curare is absolutely fascinating because it is an extract of plants that grow in South America that traditionally were used by South American natives to poison the tip of arrows. They would use this in hunting, usually with blowpipes, small game, monkeys, etc. The dart would hit the animal. The uh, curare would get into the bloodstream and the animal would quickly drop and they would then collect it and uh, eat it. Uh, there was uh, no danger of, of uh, eating the animal, even though it had the poison in it, uh, because the poison... Uh, is digested in the in in the stomach. It doesn't get into the bloodstream. 
So for curare to have any effect, it has to be injected into the, uh, into the bloodstream. Anyway, the first mention of this poison that was used by uh, natives in South America was made by the Spanish-Italian chronicler Peter Marte Danguera, who uh, wrote a book in which he described the stories that he had heard from explorers who had been to South America. And he, uh, in his uh, book, uh, De Urbano, he described the making of curare. Let's, let's just read this. The arrows are dipped in juice obtained from certain trees. There are old women skilled in its preparation who furnished with the necessary materials are shut in for two days to distill the ointment. When the house is opened, if the women are well and not found lying on the ground, half dead from the fumes of the poison, they are severely punished and the ointment is thrown away as valueless. Well, it's an intriguing little paragraph, but if it, it was total nonsense. This is not how the, the uh, poison was produced uh, at all. Someone had dreamed up this story, but it is still out there in the literature. But it was Charles-Marie de la Condamine, uh, a French explorer who had come to uh, South America and heard about the stories of the natives using uh, this plant extract and took some of it back to Europe. And that's when the first experiments were done with it in Europe. And they found that um, uh, it, was, um, uh, it was capable of paralyzing muscles. And there was a very interesting experiment that was done by a guy named Waterton with a donkey. And he injected the donkey with curare, which paralyzed it, including its, its lungs. But if he uh, used bellows, to artificially pump air into the uh, into the lungs, uh, the monkey, the uh, donkey survived, and eventually the curare was broken down in its body, and the donkey was as as good as ever. What this meant was that it would be possible to use curare in surgery to paralyze muscles, as surgeons would want, as long as the lungs were artificially inflated. And today, of course, that is exactly what is done with, with you know, yeah, during surgery, patients are intubated and their lungs are, you know, exercised with ex externally, right? So anyway, in, in the Americas, the biggest contribution was made in 1938 by Richard Gill in Ecuador, who had become very interested in, in plants that grew there and he also had heard about these stories about this poison extracted from uh, mostly from barks of trees or from plants. And he organized a demonstration walking with a stick because he had fallen from a horse. So he, he was injured. Re-entered the Ecuadorian jungle, 1938. With him were his wife, 75 porters, 36 mules, 12 canoes, quantities of equipment and goods to trade. They headed east, deep into the Amazon basin. They had to be blind. They had to blindfold the mules to get them across swaying suspension bridges, and they braved whitewater rapids. Eventually, the expedition set up a base camp close to a village, 
because Gil was known and trusted, the people agreed to prepare curare for him in exchange for cloth, knives, and other goods. Gil noted which plants were gathered for the curare mixture, samples of each along with scores of others that he thought might have medical uses. And he learned from the natives how to extract these plants and make curare. He noted exactly which plants were to be used and how this was done. It was a rather elaborate process to make this extract, which eventually looked like a black gummy residue from, from the plants. And he wrote a book about it called Flying Death. The Flying Death were the darts that were expelled from the blowpipes by the natives. Once again, people learned about this kind of stuff from cartoonists who are always very quick to jump on scientific uh, discoveries. Uh, Dr. Bennett was the doctor who Gill gave some of his curare for testing. I came for more curare for Dr. Bennett. I also brought the penicillin and sulfanilamide you ordered. Great. I'm also fresh out of Band-Aids. Uh, so it just depicted how, you know, they were able to trade with the uh, with the natives. So anyway, eventually, of course, uh, the active ingredient was identified and isolated, and we know it to be tubocurarine, and we know how it works. It blocks the action of one of these neurotransmitters in the body called acetylcholine, and uh, it it was really a godsend to surgeons because it made surgery much easier without muscles uh, going into spasm. And it also allowed less anesthesia to, uh, to use. And uh, if you look at textbooks of anesthesia, the period will often be defined as pre or post Griffith because it was such a, a, an important uh, discovery. So today, when surgeons, you know, slice into a patient, they don't have to worry about these spasms. Now, of course, uh, since that time, uh, better drugs have been developed, but based upon curare, because once the molecular structure of curare was known, uh, chemists did what is very commonly done. You try to improve by making modifications in the molecular structure. And uh, so today we have a number of, of, of drugs that, that, are, that are used. Interesting enough, one of the uses that, you know, I guess it's not really a highlight of curare is, is that it's used in executions in the U.S. where uh, executions are carried out by lethal injection. And curare is one of the drugs that is used because it paralyzes the lungs and prevents the person from uh, breathing. It's used together with potassium chloride, which stops the heart from beating, and with barbiturates that put the person to sleep in, in the first place. Uh, so today, uh, surgery, of course, is very sophisticated, uh, but uh, Griffith uh, has a huge place in, in its development, and that's why Canada even, as you can see, uh, printed a stamp. Uh, honoring the uh, discovery of curare in, in, in surgery. So today, uh, uh, of course, anesthesia is very sophisticated. There are a number of anesthetics. They're you know, pumped into your body with 
complex uh, machines. Uh, and there are some interesting issues that, that come up. There are about 230 million major surgical procedures uh, every year. Think about that, 230 million, and that's a lot of op operations. And there are some concerns here. The gases that are inhaled by the patient are also exhaled. They're not broken down in the body, they're not metabolized. So they're called waste anesthetic gases. Question is, what happens to them? Because the metabolism is minimal, 95% are eliminated unchanged via exhalation. And there are some concerns here because you have to think, where do these gases go? And what do, what do they do? And there are three basic problems here. One is uh, destruction of the ozone layer. The ozone layer is what protects us from ultraviolet light. Then, of course, there's the greenhouse effect responsible for climate change. And the question of whether or not people who are working in the operating room, uh, the nurses and the doctors, uh, what is the effect of these anesthetic gases on them? Well, we know that the, uh, the issue with the ozone layer is, is, is uh, a serious one because we want that ozone layer intact. And it turns out that nitrous oxide, which is still used, although not uh, certainly not as much as it, it used to be used, but it's still used by dentists quite extensively. Well, it turns out that nitrous oxide will, by this set of reactions, will destroy ozone. Uh, so one has to be you know, aware of, of, of that. The other uh, anesthetic gases, such as uh, this one, isofluorane, also go up into the upper atmosphere and can also destroy the ozone layer. Then we have the greenhouse effect, because these gases, when they stay in the atmosphere, prevent heat from the Earth from going into, into space. So the nitrous oxide and the other uh, inhaled anesthetics play a role in that as, as well. And they persist, as you can see, they persist up there for, in some cases, a decade. So it does have an effect. Uh, if you want to have sort of a feel for it, here is a number that's often quoted, greenhouse gas emissions from these waste anesthetic gases uh, from a mid-sized hospital equal the equivalent of driving 1,000 passenger cars for a year. Now, that kind of sounds ominous, but still, in the overall context, it's not that relevant. It's about 0.1% of all the greenhouse gases that are produced. And of course, the carbon dioxide that is produced by our cars, airplanes, etc., is the, the major problem. And finally, there's a question of the occupational hazard of inhaling these gases, even in small amounts, you know, exposure in the uh, operating room. And there are health effects. Uh, headaches, for example, that's a, a classic one. Uh, you get fatigued. Now, we're, we're not talking about inhaling significant amounts. I mean, this is barely noticeable. But if you're exposed to this constantly, uh, it can have effects even in you know long term. So these days, there uh, certainly 
uh, are all kinds of measures that are taken to prevent this. They have scavenger systems, uh, which will absorb any gas from from the operating room so that you know it doesn't uh, get in inhaled. So there's a lot of sophisticated technology there. So the occupational hazard these days is not that uh, significant. And also today, there is a lot of intravenous anesthesia used that is not inhaled, but injected into the bloodstream. And then you don't have to worry about gases. The classic one here is propofol. And uh, this is one that has been made famous because this is the one that did away with uh, Michael Jackson. Uh, but it's not a gas, so you don't have to worry about it in the uh, operating room. Uh, there's one last worry here, is that these substances, whether it's propofol or any of the other medications that you take, eventually end up in natural waters because a lot of it comes out in the urine. And then, of course, there are a lot of medicines which people just throw out after they've, you know, they don't need them anymore. And we have remnants in our water. And your Brita filter is not going to get rid of that. Now, whether or not this has any consequence in the small amount is very hard to say, but but we'd rather not have these in there. So anyway, so that gives you hopefully a, a interesting picture of the history of anesthesia, and you know how we've come a long way from the most uh, primitive uh, methods, and um, it's, a, it's one of the more fascinating stories in the history of science. And, you know, just, just think that we're only going back to the middle 1800s. And for the, you know, uh, millions of years that humans have been on the planet before that, they suffered pain without any kind of uh, uh, anesthesia. So if there are any burning questions, uh, we can, yeah. It doesn't put you to sleep. No, not not deep enough to to be oblivious when you're being cut open. But but it will make you happy. Yeah. Anything else? All right. So we'll see you next uh, next month. <laughs>